Amen. Thank you, Pastor Chad. Thank you, Sister Pat, for the beautiful offertory uh, hymn. And thank you all for being here today. That's what's really important is that God assembles His people together for the purpose of worshiping God and glorifying Him and exalting His name. And I feel like we have been doing that as we have been singing together and reading responsibly together. And I appreciate your participation in that. I'll invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 6. And we'll move forward from there. I think it's interesting how God is working and providentially having some of the uh, past, the other pastors uh, and preachers uh, preaching through the book of Exodus. God is, is shaping and fashioning and calling out a people for himself in the nation of Israel. And so as they lead us through the book of Exodus and, and the development of the nation of Israel, that covenant relationship with Almighty God, it's interesting too that on Sunday mornings with me in the book of Acts, we're watching as God is also calling out a people for himself. It's interesting that the word ecclesia, from which we get church, simply means those who are called out. So you could say Israel as a nation was a called out body of people. They were, they were former slaves, descendants of Abraham, called out of slavery and, and to follow uh, Moses through the wilderness into the promised land. And yet in the book of Acts, we also see that beginning at Pentecost, God is calling out from the, from the nations, if you will, beginning at Jerusalem, but certainly moving beyond there. He's calling out a people for himself known as the church, the body of Christ. And certainly God is still in the process of calling out his people, you and me. And so every opportunity that we have to share the gospel with someone and to invite them to receive Christ and be forgiven of their sins, we are actually doing God's work of adding to the body of Christ. And so that's, that's exciting. You know, as I think about the, the church, and I think about, and I just challenge you to be creative this morning. That comes easy for most of you, but not for some of us. But anyway, just, just imagine the earthly kingdom of God as, as a clear night sky adorned with myriads of, of stars. And each of the stars representing kingdom servants, Christians, are unique. Uh, some burn brighter than others and some burn longer than others. But, but against that night sky of the kingdom of God consisting of Christians, if you will, older stars will eventually fade onto the horizon and disappear. At the same time, new nova stars will burst on the horizon in their brightness and, and shining. And I think about a star that burns faithfully and consistently there against that night sky, night after night after night. And I think about uh, dear saints of the, uh, in the Lord. Oh, by the way, I thought it was interesting, you know, the Roman Catholic Church is making a big to-do because they've selected two popes to be saints and i'm saying big deal the bible says all of us are saints in christ amen so you don't need special ceremonies and and pontifications and what have you you're a saint if you're a child of god you are a saint okay now getting back to my night sky image those consistently faithful stars and and i think in terms of dear saints that have served the lord consistently, year after year, decade after decade. Just like that star that's in position and faithfully, steadfastly burning and giving light, 
There these saints are for years. I think about Dr. Billy Graham. He's 95 years old, still serving the Lord as best he can with his physical limitations. I think about Dr. Charles Stanley, who so faithfully led our Southern Baptist Convention and pastored First Baptist Atlanta and so many people's uh, pastor from television. You know, I think about great men in, in the faith like that, but then I think about my dad. He's 87 years old, deacon in that little country church. He's been there from the time he was a little boy. And so faithfully, steadfastly serving the Lord. I think about our senior saints here at Cornerstone and how consistent they have been through the years. And so, you know, I thank God for those who make up the kingdom of God who are, have, have, through longevity, have demonstrated their faithfulness and commitment to the Lord. And that's the way it is. But then, also, in this imagery of the night sky, if you will, there comes that... that uh, illuminated uh, uh, a streak of light. We call it a falling star, a meteorite that just just all of a sudden burst on the scene and it's brilliance and it captures our attention. And we follow it and just as quickly as it appears, it disappears. And I think that uh, using that same symbolism on the, in the kingdom of God, there comes those unusually, wonderfully gifted, bold, young servants of the Lord who God just brings on the scene in a rush and they burn brightly for the Lord. But then before you know it, they're gone. I think about missionary Jim Elliott and his team of of five young missionaries just out of Bible college, fired up for the Lord, deeply convicted to take the gospel message deep into the jungles of South America to a very barbaric tribe, the Alka Indians, and how they patiently, patiently sought to develop a relationship with that Indian tribe there. And lo and behold, the very day that they were going to try to introduce the gospel, begin to make contact with them, All five of them were slaughtered by the same tribe that they were so yearning to take the gospel to. Young men, snuffed out. Jim Elliott left behind his young bride, Elizabeth Elliott, who wrote a book through the gates of glory about this. And if you ever get a chance to read it, it'll really capture your heart. But he left behind this young bride with a baby girl. So did the other men left behind their wives, young wives and children. Their lives just snuffed out, burned brightly for such a short time. And then they're gone. As we look at the scripture today, we're going to see one of those bright, burning, short-lived stars. I introduced you to him a couple of weeks ago when I walked you through the chapter 6 of the book of Acts. You remember the church was having some difficulty because one segment of the early church was not being served properly. The Hellenist Jews, the Greek Jews, felt like their widows were being neglected somewhat. So the apostles wisely said to the church, we want you to select seven men. Seven men who are full of the Holy Spirit. Men of good reputations and wisdom. Select these men and they will be the servants. They'll serve the tables. We'll have to dedicate ourselves to the word and to prayer. One of those seven men was by by the name of Stephen. In fact, he was listed first. And I believe that was for a reason. Because as I take you back to chapter 6 there, I want you to see how Stephen came on the scene as a result of the fact that he was called by the church to serve the members. He was a servant. 
Something very similar to what we see in contemporary deacons in the church. But, but his role was a little bit different. We'll see that. But good, take you back to chapter 6 and look at verse 3. It says, Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. And then if you'll drop down to verse 5, it says, And the saying pleased the whole multitude, the church. And they chose Stephen. Now look how he's described. A man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. And then it lists the other five men that go along, that make up that early group of servants. Prototypes of deacons, if you would. And so, and then, in verse 6 it says that the, the apostles, when they prayed for them, they laid hands on them. And so, as we look in, in, in chapter 6, Stephen is introduced as one who is called by the church to serve the church. But I think it's interesting, it only takes a couple verses. By the time we get to verse 8, Luke is letting us know that this same Stephen, who was called into a servant role in the church, is now being catapulted by the Holy Spirit to defend the faith. He might say that in addition to his role of servant, Stephen is one of the first apologists. That doesn't mean, as the word seems to imply, that he's going around apologizing and apologizing because he's a Christian. Far from it. If any of you have ever heard Dr. Ravi Zacharias, you know he's not one to back down on defending the faith and the Christian doctrine. He's a modern day 21st century apologist, and that's what an apologist does. They are gifted by God, trained by God, filled with the Spirit of God, and anointed to be able to defend the Christian doctrine and the Christian faith. And that's what we'll see in this young man, Stephen, who God is raising up. And the way that God raises him up is because he's equipped to do this by the Spirit of God. So go down to verse 8, chapter 6. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. So this tells us he's not an ordinary deacon. Now our deacons are great. and They do wonderful work. And they're absolutely reliable, but they're not doing wonders and signs. Okay? Um, of course, they do some great things around the church, and some of you may be in awe, but the fact is, they don't do miracles. But Stephen did. And the reason that he did is because the Holy Spirit empowered him to do these as authentication of the fact that the Christian faith was what it was proposed to be, that the church was authentically the people of God. And, and so this is just given as an extra to, to uh, convince the people. And so he's empowered by the Holy Spirit to do wonders and signs. Now, it doesn't take long to see that though he's called by the church, catapulted by the Spirit to be the, the, the church's first apologist, that just Satan is not going to stand by and idly watch someone do something highly effective for the cause of Christ. Amen? I guarantee you that. The minute that you determine that you're going to follow Christ and be a serious-minded Christian and stand for the tenets of the faith and stand on the biblical principles to which we are called in following Christ, I promise you, you're going to have resistance. You will face confrontation. And that's exactly what happened for this great young leader in the church, Stephen. In verse 9, Then there arose some... From what is called the synagogue of the freedom. That sounds like some of those church names that you see. You can see that on the side of a van driving down the road, can't you? Synagogue of the freedom. Made up of Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia. Disputing, arguing, or rather debating Stephen. 
They couldn't wait. They, they couldn't stand this young fella who was a firecracker, who was out there preaching and teaching the Christian faith and standing so boldly on the things and proposing this Christ who was crucified, buried, and resurrected. Oh, they, they wanted to get a hold of him and dismantle him and discredit him. But I thought it was interesting. And by the way, I think it's interesting also that some of the commentaries point out that Saul of Tarsus, who would later become the Apostle Paul, was a Hellenist Jew. He resided in Jerusalem. This was probably his synagogue. Could have been. So right in the thick of those Hellenist Jews who were vehemently debating and fighting with Stephen verbally, I suspect that there was this young fired up Pharisee who later called himself a Pharisee of Pharisees, a Jew of Jews. He was a student of Gamaliel. I mean, he would have been one of them that they would have pushed up there and said, go get him, Saul. Go tear him apart, Saul. But I thought it was interesting as we look further there in verse 10, it says, and they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. I've never been on a debate team. I stuttered too much, but I can imagine being on a debate team and having somebody like a Stephen who just sits back and lets the other team go ahead and ramble on what they want to and then you just turn, turn them loose like saying, sick them to a hound dog. And he just methodically, very intelligently begins to just dismantle all of their arguments and they're standing there flabbergasted. And that's what Stephen was doing. He was taking them on. He was taking the whole group on. He'd, Come on, give me all you got. And he was dismantling them with the supernatural wisdom of God given to him. And they could not stand it. Or rather, I should say, Satan could not stand it. So, as we look further, after they're confronting Stephen and they see that they can't get any headway with him, they can't win against this man. You know why? <laughs> they're not arguing and debating with Stephen. Did you see what it said? The man is filled with the Spirit of God. They're, they're trying to debate God. They're taking on the infinite mind that knows all things. He's omniscient. No wonder they couldn't make any headway. And so when they couldn't do that, then they resort to other means. And we'll see that here as we look further. It says in verse 11, Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him say, or speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And that gets a, a Jew's attention. And they stirred up the people, they stirred up the elders, they stirred up the scribes, and they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council, the Sanhedrin, which is the highest ruling body in Judaism. Now, if that sounds a little bit familiar, you're probably thinking since we just went through Easter and talked about Good Friday and talked about Jesus being arrested and talking about Jesus facing a kangaroo court before the Sanhedrin, you may recall that our very Lord had his same... Listen, Satan's tactics are predictable because Jesus was facing false witnesses and he was facing false accusations. And, 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 and right here, they're doing the same thing with Stephen. When, you, when they couldn't prevail through truth, why? Why not try to win with lies? And brothers and sisters, I'm going to tell you something. When you choose to stand on the truth of God's word today, be prepared. 
Be prepared because Satan has no rules of ethics. He'll look in any way he can to discredit you, to dis- disarm you. He'll throw lies at you. He'll throw all kinds of deceitful. He'll have a, a false accusation. Anything that he can. Because he's not into winning fairly. He's just in to winning. Period. And so we see that their deceitful tactics were here designed to upset the crowd, to stir the people up. And look at verse 13. They also set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place. Now that's going to be significant because they're in the temple complex now. And they're looking at this majestic building that has been built to the honor and glory of God. And they're claiming that Stephen has spoke blasphemous words against the temple and against the law. In verse 14, For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the the customs which Moses delivered to us. So you see where they're coming from. They're saying, He, this Stephen is attacking that which is precious to us as Jews. He's blasphemously attacked Moses, the law, the, the, the temple, our holy place of worship, Judaism, which is the life of the Jew. And, and, and so they bring these false charges against him. I think it's interesting that they try to use the same thing they used against Jesus. The false witnesses said, oh, we heard him say, he, he'll tear this temple down. And build it back in three days. And of course Jesus wasn't talking about the physical temple complex. He was speaking of his own body. How he would be crucified. And after three days he'd be resurrected. But you see they took that. Twisted it. Took it out of context. And there they go. Trying to do the same thing here with Stephen. So this brings us to the point now that Stephen is in an unenviable position. You know I don't like to go to court. And, and I'm glad to say I haven't had, you know, occasion to show up there, you know, because I've broken laws and things like that. Now, when I was at social services, with protective services for children, I was in court quite a bit presenting cases for children that would have been abused and neglected. But, but anyway, just it's kind of nerve wracking being in front of a judge. But imagine Stephen standing there before the Sanhedrin, the same mob that had murdered the Lord Jesus or had him murdered. The same mob, if you will. Notice I'm just using mob, not court. The same religious mob that had arrested Peter and John and threatened them. And then when that wasn't good enough, they had the whole bunch of disciples arrested and beat them, had them beaten, and then warned them not to preach this Jesus. So this is not a pleasant group. This is not a garden party of Jerusalem. This is a bunch of folks that have power And don't hesitate to misuse that power. So here he is standing before this group now. Chapter uh, chapter 7 verse 1. But you know, I'm sure Stephen being learned in the word of God. And filled with the spirit of God. Remembered key passages in the Old Testament. Like Exodus 4.12 where Moses was sweating going to tell Pharaoh. God sent me to tell you to let my people go. Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world at that time, could have just had his head chopped off or whatever. Moses is is a little nervous about, well, well, if I get there, what am I going to say? You know, and he's, he's trying to beg himself out of that, you know, but, but, you know, God, I'm, 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 I'm thick of tongue and, you know, 
And God just kind of hushed him up and says, Go therefore, and I'll be with your mouth, and I'll teach you what you will say. Stephen remembered that, I believe. But not only that, I believe Stephen remembered what the Lord told his disciples in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 10, verse 16. He told his disciples prophetically, looking ahead to this very day and days like it. He said, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. This is Matthew chapter 10, verse 16. Therefore be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in the synagogues. And you will be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But look at verse 19. But when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak. For it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. There will be times, brothers and sisters, where you may find yourself having to stand to defend what you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. I shudder to think what waits for our nation just maybe a generation ahead. But the tides have definitely turned against Christianity and against the church. The, the Christian church, especially evangelical Christians, no longer have the favor of the government any longer or the secular gov- uh, 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 society any longer. In fact, there are sentiments of antagonism now aimed at evangelical Christians, those who stand on the Bible, who stand for what the Bible stands for, and stand on the teachings of Christ. I promise you, the time is coming where Christians will be standing before hostile authorities and will have to decide, am I going to stand for the truth? Am I going to proclaim what, is, what I know in my heart is true? Or will I recant? I thought it was interesting that in Fox's Book of Martyrs, They indicated that more Christians have been persecuted in the 20th century than in all previous centuries cumulatively. Don't think that just because you live in a comfortable Western culture that everything is just fine and dandy out there in the world. There are hostile, evil, anti-Christian forces that are already in the process of being developed to persecute believers. If you don't know what you believe, you need to know. And you need to know how to defend that. And that's why I applaud our pastoral team and our other leaders because we are offering to you solid teaching on Sunday mornings in Christian Growth Group to help prepare you and me and prepare our young people, prepare our children because this America that we have loved and, and, and lived in and enjoyed that favored Christianity will soon become one that will be persecuting those who are sincere believers. So here's Stephen. Standing before this hostile bunch and the first thing that comes out of the mouth of the high priest in verse 1 in chapter 7 is, are these things so? And now, here's Stephen. And I think it's interesting that he doesn't launch into some desperate attempt to plead for mercy or to get himself off. He simply preaches. And what you'll see from, for the next number of verses is one of the longest sermons printed in the Scriptures. It's a, he preaches a sermon. He doesn't address the charges specifically that they've made against him, but in the body of the sermon, he indeed addresses some of those. And the first thing that Stephen starts off with there 
in his sermon, beginning in verse 2, is, first of all, he, he, he reaches out to, to bridge a gap between him and those that are his accusers, if you will. He says in verse 2, men and brethren and fathers, in other words, he's saying, look, I'm, I'm one of you. I'm, I'm a Jew. I'm, I'm a follower of the teachings of Moses and, and Abraham. The, the God of glory appeared to our father. You'll notice he's using first person, personal uh, pronoun. To, to our father Abraham, when he was in Mesopotamia, before he dwelt in Haran, talking about Abraham. And, and said to him, get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran, talking about Abraham. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell. And God gave him no inheritance in it, nor even, not even enough to set his foot on. But even when Abraham had no child, he promised to give it to him for possession and to his descendants after him. Uh, Stephen is pointing out that Abraham, who didn't have any possessions of land, and God says, all of this is going to be yours one day. And then he went on, God says, and, and a part of this covenant that I'm making with you, Abraham, a part of this promise I'm making with you is not only that, but your descendants, plural, will possess it. Abraham didn't have any children. His wife, Sarah, was childless. That's important to remember as we move further. But God spoke in verse 6, but God spoke in this way that his descendants would sojourn in a foreign land. Speaking of when the children of Israel were taken into Egypt, went down into Egypt. And that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them 400 years. And the nation to whom they will be in bondage, I will judge, God says. And he's, he's referring to Exodus 3.12. God's telling them. And after that, they shall come, come out and serve me in this place. Then he gave him the covenant of circumcision. So Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot the twelve patriarchs. So what we're seeing here is he starts off with, with holding up Abraham, and, and to do that would certainly win the favor of the Jews, the Jewish leaders, and everybody. Agreed. Abraham, he's our father. But he holds Abraham up, and I think what he's doing is he's setting them up for contrasting the people and the leaders of the Jews at that time against Abraham. Because you know the scripture makes it abundantly clear that Abraham was a man of faith. He was a man who chose to follow God and his, his faith. In fact, Pastor Tim touched on this in Galatians in chapter 3. When he was preaching through Galatians, this is what it says in Galatians 3, 6. Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. What was Abraham's righteousness? That he obeyed the law? No, he didn't have the law. Was it because he, he did certain works that pleased God? No. The fact is... Abraham was considered to be right in his relationship with God because of his obedient faith. Everything that God told him to do, Abraham followed God, and God, as a result, blessed him. Now, in contrast, as you move forward in Stephen's message, you're going to see how he's showing the Jewish leaders, the Jewish people, that, that the Israelites, as a nation, have been totally rebellious and rejecting God. Contrast to Abraham. They're rebellious. In fact, it started even in Joseph. Joseph's 
time period. In verse 9, And the patriarchs, which would have been the sons of Jacob, becoming envious, sold Joseph into Egypt. But God was with him and delivered him out of his troubles and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Now now a famine and great trouble came over all the land of Egypt and Canaan. And our fathers, speaking of the, the Joseph's brothers, our fathers found no sustenance. But when Joseph heard that there was gra- but when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers first. And the second time Joseph was made known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent and called his father Jacob and all his relatives to him, 75 people. So Jacob went, out, went down to Egypt, and he died, and he and, his, and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham bought for a sum of money from the sons of Hamar, the father of Shechem. Now, what he's helping us to see is right from the beginning, in contrast to Abraham, Abraham's obedient faith, right from the beginning, the, the fathers, the patriarchs, Joseph's brothers all rejected him because they were jealous. Remember how Joseph's brothers were jealous of Joseph's dreams and instead of complying and instead of cooperating, they sold him into slavery. So right there you see the first semblance of that rejection and that spirit of rebellion that that is started in the people of Israel. But then in verse 17, now now mind you, Stephen is preaching this before the highest court in, in Judaism at that time. In verse 17, but when the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt, Till another king arose who did not know Joseph. This man dealt treacherously, we know this is Pharaoh, with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so that they might not live. At this time Moses was born and was pleasing to God. And he was brought up in his father's house for three years, three months. But when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him, uh, took him away and, and brought him up as her own son. You know the story. You're hearing this in our series of messages in Exodus. And Moses was learned in all wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. But when he was 40 years old, you'll notice what Stephen does. He divides Moses' life up into 40-year increments. The first 40 years, he's in the household of Pharaoh. He's being groomed. He's been trained. He's, he's been educated. But then at the turn of the 40, first 40 years, but when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel, and seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. You remember the story. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. So this is Moses' attempt to get them to follow him. They rejected it. And the next day he appeared to two of them as they were fighting and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brethren. Why do you do, why do you wrong one another? But he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away and said, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? And so here we go. They, they rejected Moses even at that point. Then in verse 29, at this saying, Moses fled and became a sojourner in the land of Midian where he had two sons. And this is the second 40-year phase of Moses' life. He's in the, on the backside of the desert in Midian. And when 40 years had passed, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame 
of fire in a bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight. As he drew near to observe, the voice of the Lord came to him, saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not look. Then the Lord said to him, Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. I have certainly seen the oppression of my people who, were, who are in Egypt, and I have heard their groanings, and I have come down to deliver them, and now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge, is the one God sent to be a ruler and deliver by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He brought them out, after he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness 40 years. And so this completes Moses' life. Tradition says that he lived for 120 years. So, but, but the point is, all through that wilderness trek, you'll notice that the people are rejecting and rebelling against God. They rejected Moses' first attempt to, to be their advocate. But then when he is leading them now through the, through the wilderness, you're going to see this pattern intensify. And so as we look further in verse 37, this is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, the Lord your God will raise, raise up for you a prophet like, like me from your brethren. He's speaking of Christ. So Moses is basically saying to his people, his descendants, those who would come after him, God is going to raise up a prophet He's like me, better than me, and you need to obey him. So it's almost like he's speaking from the past. Him you shall hear. What did they do with him? They crucified him. Talking about Christ. Verse 38. This is he who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give us whom our fathers would not obey, but rejected. You see that pattern of rejection. And in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt. Now, they didn't turn back to Egypt physically, but how many times did they say to Moses as he was attempting to lead them through the wilderness, following God, how many times did the Israelites say, oh, if we could just go back to Egypt, if we could just go back to Egypt and not have to be out here in this stinking wilderness and eating this manna and be thirsty and all they grumbled, they grumbled, they complained, but that wasn't the worst of it. Because we see their rejection also manifested as we move further in verse 40. Saying to Aaron, make us gods to go before us. As for this Moses, like he's like yesterday's bad bread. For this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we did not know what has become of him. That was when Moses was up on the uh, Mount Sinai getting the Ten Commandments. Verse 41, and they made a calf in those days, offered sacrifices to the idol, and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. Now, folks, the highest level of rejection to God is when you put another so-called God between you and Him. And the Israelites, in demonstrating their, their utter rejection of God and their rebellious attitude towards God, said to Aaron, make us a calf. We live in Egypt. That's what they worship down there. We want us a calf. We're tired of this Moses. We're tired of this God that we can't see. Make us a God. And Stephen is reminding the Jewish leaders and those in that court that day that they are descendants of a long line of rejecting God. They haven't seen it quite yet. And then it 
this ominous verse in verse 42. Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven. As is written in the book of the prophets, talking about in Amos chapter 5, verse 25 and 27. Did you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? Yes, you took up the tabernacle of Moloch, a, a pagan god, and the star of your god of Remphan from Egypt, images which you made to worship, and I will carry you uh, away beyond Babylon. God says, I dare you. Here I have rescued you from, from slavery. Here I have made you a nation. Here I am leading you to a, a land that flows with milk and honey. And time after time, in your arrogance and your stiff-neckedness, your hard-heartedness, you continue to reject me. You continue to rebel from the time that Joseph's brothers rejected him all the way up to this point in the wilderness. It's been just one episode of rejection after another episode. You say, well, where is Stephen going? Hang on, hang on. Because now he moves us into the era of King David. In verse 44, our fathers had the tabernacle. You remember the tabernacle? It's important to remember this. God told Moses and subsequently the Israelites, he says, you will make a tabernacle for me. And the tabernacle was a portable worship place. And wherever the children of Israel went, it went. And they moved it, and they moved it, and they moved it, they moved it. But it's important, God not only told them to make the tabernacle, He told them exactly how to make the tabernacle. All the way down to the instruments, the decorations, everything, every detail. David wanted to build a temple, didn't he? David was a man after God's own heart. He loved God. He really wanted to build a temple for God. But the important thing for you to understand in what Stephen is saying in this passage here. Not once did God ever say, I want you to build for me a permanent structure whereby you can house me. There's a difference between the tabernacle and the temple. Well, let's see what Stephen says. Our fathers had the, temple, the tabernacle of the wilderness, in the, uh, a witness in the wilderness, as he appointed, instructed Moses to make it according to the pattern that he had seen which our fathers, have, having received it in turn, also brought with Joshua into the land possessed by the Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the days of David, who found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling place or dwelling for the, for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him a house. God told David, you're not going to build it, but I will allow your son to build it. But the important thing to remember is God never says, I need a house. I need a temple like these other gods. I need some big massive structure whereby you can propose to the rest of the world, you want to see our God? Come to our city. You want to worship our God? you got to come inside of the walls of our temple. You want to experience the presence of our God? You've got to come into the Holy of Holies or as close as you can. That wasn't what God said. So even in David's well-intended proposal to build a temple, he was going against the expressed will of God. That's important because look what he says in verse 48. However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne 
and the earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? God is saying, in essence, what do you think I am? Do do you honestly think that you can build a structure on the earth that would suffice to contain the greatness of of omnipresent, sovereign, all-powerful God? Now, where's Stephen going with that? You remember one of the false accusations against him was against the temple. Ladies and gentlemen, I submit for your consideration this morning that the Jews, beginning with the Sanhedrin and the Jewish leaders, were a very idolatrous bunch of people. They didn't have the little golden calves that they bowed down to, but I'll tell you what they did bow down to. It was that massive structure that Solomon built that was torn down that Herod would soon replace, and he did. took some 40 years to build. That's the temple of that day. And they bowed down to that temple as if to say that through, through this false religion that has been manipulated out of the law of Moses, this false religion called Judaism, we have found a way to package God. And if you don't worship according to the, the laws of the, of, the, of the Sanhedrin, if you don't follow every little law and do the traditions and everything just the way we do it, you're not in. And you won't come into our temple. Do you understand the exclusivity of that suggestion they were saying to all the rest of the world? We've got God to ourselves. He's ours. He's in Jerusalem. He's in our temple. He's he's, confined to the way that we worship Him in Judaism. And this was infuriating God. It infuriated Christ. It infuriated Him because they were pushing away the very people. Do you remember the promise that God made to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3? He said to Abraham, I will make a great nation of you. And I will bless you and I'll make your name great. And you, Abraham, you will be a blessing. And I'll bless those who bless you. I'll curse those who curse you. But listen to what he said. And through you, Abraham, in other words, and through your descendants, through the Jews, he says, all the families of the earth will be blessed. What was the purpose of the, of the relationship of God with the Jews? It wasn't that they could have some little country club set on a hill in Jerusalem. No. God had raised them up and made a covenant with them and called them His people and He was their God so that they could be like a a city on a hill, a light, drawing all the ethnic groups, all the language groups, all the cultural groups to God. And lo and behold, Stephen is hitting them right between the eyes. He says, look at you. Just look at you. You're bowing down to an idol that you have made. That temple does not confine the presence of God. God is where He wants to be. Now we move on. Because He's been preaching a message. And now we turn the, the, the corner, if you will. Because Stephen's message now becomes an indictment. An indictment of the Jewish leaders. You don't win a lot of friends and gain popularity when you start calling people around you 
at work or at school, you bunch of stiff-necked, uncircumcised in heart heathens. <laughs> now, now it, and this tells me that Stephen wasn't in this message to get himself out. Because the Holy Spirit had him propped up there and he had to speak what he was speaking. And this is exactly what, when he said this, this was God saying through this instrument called Stephen. He said, as he looked into the eyes of the high priest and all the priests and the captain of the guard and all those who would be responsible for his demise. He said, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. Basically saying, you can be as circumcised physically as you want to be, but in the eyes of Jehovah God, you're not circumcised. You're not set apart because you don't even know God. He says, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. He exposes their treacherous inherited rebellion. He basically is saying to the Jewish highest level of leaders, he is saying, you are just like your forefathers. You have descended from a bunch of rebels. And you are a rebel. Verse 52, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, speaking of Christ. Of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers. Who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. God gave you the law. And you chose not to keep it. God gave you the privilege of being the people of God and you squandered it. You've rebelled over and over and over and over And we too must guard against the temptation to substitute anything else in the place of heartfelt biblical worship. In a day when the culture has wooed and mesmerized so many evangelical churches into this spell of, of, of compliance, Whereby people calling themselves God-fear and Scripture-loving Christians are now bowing down to their structures. It's more important that they have ornate buildings and everything be decorative and expensive to, to win the favor of the secular crowd. Oh, we've got to have the best of the best. And not only that, they bow down to their sacred cow of music. Oh, and listen, we're not here to worship God. We're here to be entertained. Let's have another show. Let's see what the next act can do. How can you mesmerize me? How can you entertain me? How can you excite me? Oh, listen, God, we're not interested in Him. It's all about us. Listen, the culture has, has done a number on the contemporary church of today where the church has become more man-centered than it is God-centered. And Stephen, looking into the eyes of the Jewish leaders of that day, rebuked them and indicted them as if to say, you are not the people of God. Well, I'm sure they said, oh boy, that's, that's interesting. Time for a coffee break. No, 
It goes fast now, folks. I know time is running out. Verse 54. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. Makes you think about Hebrews 4.11, talking about the Word of God is living and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword, cutting to, to the division of soul and spirit and joint and marrow. It is the discern of the heart and the intents of the heart. Let me tell you something. Nothing will cut through all the garbage and facades like the Word of God. Goes deep down to the heart. When people are moved with anger and rejection, listen, you can guarantee you've touched a nerve. No, you haven't touched it. The Word of God has touched it. And that's what happened there. It says that they were cut to the heart. They gnashed at at Him with, with their teeth. They were so angry. But He, look at the contrast. They eat up, they eat up like a, like a bowling volcano. They are about to erupt with hostility and hate and anger. And what is Stephen doing? Verse 55. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. What do you do in the heat of debate? What do you do when the devil is turning up the temperature? What do you do when the adversary is coming after you and those who don't like Christianity and don't like you are becoming to, to be more hostile towards you? What do you do? Do you start wringing your hands and looking around? Do you start fretting and worrying and looking for some place to hide? No, I'll tell you what you do. You and I do the same thing that Stephen does. You look towards heaven. You get your eyes focused on the Lord. You understand who He is and who you are in relation to Him. And don't let the devil distract you in a time like that. And Stephen looked up and he, listen, do you understand the faith? of God when he rolls back the curtains of heaven and allows an individual to see the glory of God that's not a small thing folks God is almost shouting from his throne in heaven and Christ at his right hand way to go Stephen keep it up boy don't back off now and he sees the listen what in the world could be more important and significant and comforting and assuring than seeing the very glory of God I remember one of our first deacons at Cornerstone, Zach Morius, dear brother in the Lord. I love Zach. He had emphysema so bad in his later days. I remember the night he died over at Forsyth Hospital. I wasn't there, but the nurse was telling me and his wife Merrill that she, he just suddenly had a terrible episode. He just hit him like a ton of bricks in his chest. He was fighting and gasping for breath and said, you know, she went in and she could see he was struggling so hard and, and, and so she just sat on the side of the bed. She just kind of cradled old Zach up in, the, in her arms and, and just holding him tight while he was trying to get his breath and says, with that he just stopped. See, this nurse was recounting it just said, said he just stopped struggling, stopped gasping. He said, just look straight up. And he says, I see Jesus. <laughs> and she said, she said, ma'am, I, she said, listen, that moment, as soon as he said that, he breathed out one breath and just like a baby fell asleep in my arms and went on to be with the Lord. I just believe. I believe in dying grace for those saints that God wants to favor. If He chooses to give them a glimpse of heaven prior to coming home, then praise the Lord. That's God's way of comforting His children. And that's God's way of comforting Stephen and reassuring him. Don't you worry, Stephen. Don't you worry. You just keep your eyes on us, brother. You just keep your eyes and your hope. Your hope is on. You're coming home. You're coming home soon. Don't give up the fight right now. 
In verse 57, then they cried out with a loud voice, stopping their ears. You see, for a Jew to listen to what they considered to be blasphemy was a sin. So they were doing, have you ever, you know, maybe those of you that had brothers and sisters that got on your nerves from time to time, you know, and maybe they're talking, saying something, or what, singing, or whatever. So you get your fingers in your ear, and you're, nah, 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 nah. you don't want to hear them. They didn't want to hear Stephen. They didn't want to hear anymore. Why? Because it was cutting deep. He was killing them in their heart. They cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and they ran at him with one accord. Let me tell you something. This was not an organized court proceeding. At this point, ladies and gentlemen, the devil is in full control. And this high court of religious people who are supposed to be revered and honored and righteous are now nothing more than a murderous mob. And you'll see the evidence of it. And they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. They didn't even wait for an indictment. They didn't wait for a judgment. They Listen... The law said they didn't even have the authority to execute a person. The Romans were supposed to do that. But when you're filled with rage and hate, you don't stop to think. Now, are we doing this by the book? They weren't doing it by the book. Cast him out of the city and stoned him. In other words, they just shoved him, shoved him down the streets. Get him out. Get him out of the city. We can't kill him in the city. Get him outside the city. And as soon as they got him out, I believe the witnesses began to hurl stones. Poof, poof, poof. That's not, that's not biblical stoning. I didn't realize this. I did a little research. That's not biblical stoning. They were breaking the law right there. According to the Mishnah, their God of, of religious traditions in Judaism, you take the person that's been duly accused and rightly uh, um, judged to, to be stoned, you take them outside the city. It sounds nice and compassionate. But you find a 10 to 12 foot cliff and you strip them naked and push them off. And then the fall is supposed to do serious damage. I guess they have rocks piled down. It's not hay. So, so you, you push them off the cliff. Then when they fall and they hit the cliff, the bottom and they're crushed up and broken up, if that doesn't kill them, then the first witness has the honor at the top of the cliff of taking a massive stone and rolling it and rolling it and then dropping it off so that it hits on the chest. And then, if that doesn't kill them, then there's, notice these have to be, this is what the law required, okay? This is a real stoning. Then the second witness, if that didn't do it, the first one, then the second witness, he gets his rock. <clears throat> and they position the body so it hits the head. They didn't even bother looking at the law. They weren't interested in doing that which was, was, was called for in proper legal proceedings. No, why? Because they were a mob. Satan specializes in mobs. He conjures up mobs today. But anyway, it's interesting in verse 58, and they cast him out of the city and stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. There he is. Was Saul saying, don't, don't, please, don't, don't, don't go easy on him yet. No, Saul said, give it to him, boys. I got you, coach, don't worry. Crush that heathen. Crush that heretic. Kill him. Saul was all in it. He was a cheerleader on the, on the front line. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. I want you to see the parallel between Stephen's death and Christ on the cross. Because I believe the Lord gave to Stephen dying grace that only could be emulated by Jesus. Because you remember Jesus on the cross. When his time is done, he says, Father, 
I commend my spirit into your hands. Stephen said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Was Stephen concerned about where he was going? Did Stephen have any doubt where his soul was going to be? Did Stephen have any misgivings about life after death? Oh no. He knew exactly what was going to happen. And then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. Does that sound familiar? Does that make you think about Black, oh, Black Friday? Good Friday, Jesus on the cross. When Jesus looked down at the sneering mob that was crucifying Him. And He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. God was giving Stephen dying grace. And when He had said this, using a very familiar Christian term for death, he fell asleep. It doesn't say he went to purgatory. It doesn't say he was in soul sleep. It means simply his soul left his body and went immediately into the presence of the Lord. How do you and I look at someone like Stephen and say, wow, where do I fit in? I pray to God that none of us will ever have to face a murderous mob because of our faith in Jesus Christ. But I can assure you that hostilities lie ahead for those who are faithful followers of Christ. Now, if you're a compromised believer, superficial, you kind of go with the flow of the world, you probably won't have a lot of problems. But if you choose to follow Christ, I can assure you, you will have those who will rise up against you. And my prayer for me and my prayer for you and for our children and for our grandchildren is that we will stand as firm on the teachings of the Scriptures and our convictions about who Jesus is as the Son of God, crucified, buried, and resurrected, and at the right hand of God the Father, as old Stephen did. Does God expect anything less of you and me because we live in the 21st century? Absolutely not. Faithfulness is faithfulness. And that's all that we can pray for. 